We've been in the book of 2 Timothy, and there is much that is disconcerting as we think about Paul's ministry and the outcome of the events that have taken place in the life of the Apostle Paul. We've seen that he's in prison for his faith and that he's been abandoned by many of those individuals who had even served alongside of him. He said Demas, Demas had abandoned him had forsaken him. There are words of encouragement to Timothy to continue steadfast and strong in the faith, to participate in the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ, to not be ashamed of the gospel, nor of Paul's bonds. As we think about life and all of its uncertainty, it can raise a lot of questions. What if, what if, what is going to happen to these people that had abandoned Paul. What are we to think about individuals that uh, are less than faithful in their commitment to Christ? What about those that are faithful, who demonstrate great courage, even as the Apostle Paul, who could, at the end of his life, say, I have fought a good fight, I've finished my course, I've kept the faith, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord will give unto me at that day. What are we to think and what are we to think about ourselves? Have you ever asked yourself the question, what if? What if I were in that situation? What would I do? What if I encountered persecution? How would I respond? What encouragement or hope is there as we think about these hard and difficult questions? This morning, we are going to consider what is referred to in the scripture as a trustworthy or faithful statement. There are actually five of them in the Pauline epistles. But this morning we're looking at just the one. It covers verses 11 and 12 and 13. The faithful saying is this, For if we have died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This faithful saying is a motto to live by, perhaps an early hymn, but a basic truth that we're to keep in mind, which we should all agree upon. These very basic elements of our, of our faith. And we want to look at each one of them this morning, each one of these if-then statements to better understand our own Christian life. The first is, what if we are united with Christ in his death? Verse 11, for if we have died with him, then we are also united with him in his new life. The death that is being referred to is being united to Christ in his crucifixion. That is, partaking of the benefits of Christ's death through faith. In verse 11, when it states, if we have died with him, we shall also live with him, is very, very familiar. We find a like statement in Romans chapter 6, verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. In Romans chapter 6, it's talking about a picture of, of baptism. Of course, we practice baptism by immersion. And in that picture, 
When a person goes under the water, it symbolizing, symbolizes dying with Christ. And when they come up out of the water, it symbolizes having risen with Christ. In fact, it is a symbol. But it's to represent the newness of life that is to be manifest in a person who has come to know the Lord Jesus Christ is their Savior. So that living with him carries with it the connotation of a new or changed life that we now live as a result of being united to Christ. In Galatians 2.20, a verse that many of you know, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of God and the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So there's this changed life that results in partaking the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection. However, what is primarily in view in this particular section in 2 Timothy is the life to come. It's the resurrection life. That we will live with Christ physically after we die. In verse 8, Paul said, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. The gospel centers upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Word of God tells us that if Christ had not risen, we are yet in our sins, and we of all men most miserable. But Christ indeed has risen from the dead. And we can have confidence in our acceptance with God because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus rose, we who believe in him will be resurrected to everlasting life as well. Later on in 2 Timothy, Paul is going to write about two individuals who overthrow the faith of some, having said that the resurrection is past already. They had developed a false view about the resurrection of the dead. Paul tells us here that it is a faithful saying that if we die with him, we will also live with him. We who have died to death because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ will also be risen with Christ. There is complete assurance if we die with Christ that we will also live with him. And notice that what the text does not say. It does not say if we die for Christ, we will live for him. It's not talking about martyrdom. But rather it's saying if we have died with Christ in being united with his death and resurrection through faith. What if we endure to the end? Then the scripture says that we will rule with Christ, verse 12. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. Endurance is the main emphasis of the passage. So far in the weeks that we've been looking through 2 Timothy, we have found that there are two reasons that we are to endure in our commitment to Jesus Christ and the gospel. Why we're not to be ashamed of it, why we are to be willing to participate in the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first reason that was given was to please God 
who has called us into his service. In verse 3 of chapter 2, it says, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian suits, pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. We talked about God, in fact, drafted us into his service. And now we are to live our lives to please him and to accomplish his purposes. The second reason that we saw that we are to endure and continue on in our relationship with Jesus Christ is for the sake of the salvation of the elect. Verse 10. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. We talked about how God had, before eternity passed, had chosen a people unto himself, and that God sent his Son into the world to redeem those individuals. And Paul had dedicated himself to continue on and proclaim the gospel for the sake of the elect that they would obtain salvation. We said that they were chosen before the foundation of the earth, but they weren't saved before the foundation of the earth. They needed to hear the gospel. They needed to come into a right relationship with God, even as Paul had to come into a right relationship with God. And so he endured. And we emphasize the fact that it's important for us that we're not ashamed of the gospel. We enter into the sufferings so that other people will come to faith, those people whom God has chosen. This morning, we look at the third reason that's given to us in the text, and that is that if we endure with him, we shall also reign with him. The first talked about his, the glory of God. The second talked about the importance for other people. This verse talks about, if I can be so crude, is to what is in it for us. And that is that if we endure, we shall also reign with him. So we need to ask ourselves, first of all, what it means to endure. What does that mean? If we endure, we will also reign with him. The King James translates verse 12 with the words, if we suffer, if we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. Literally, the word means to remain under or to abide in the circumstances that one is experiencing. It's the opposite of to run away or try to get out from under a difficult situation. It is to remain true to one's duty, hold one's ground despite the hardship, difficulty, or suffering that might have to experience. It's like that soldier who's on the high ground, whose commander says that you are to endure, you are to hold that position no matter what comes against you. This endurance is holding our position in Jesus Christ, holding on to the truth of the gospel and affirming that truth and declaring that truth to still others. It is the willingness to participate in the sufferings of Jesus. The benefit of enduring is given to us as reigning with him. Notice verse 12. If we endure, we will also reign 
with him. Jesus spoke about reigning with him as a means of encouraging his disciples. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus said to them, that is to the twelve, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on the glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus spoke as of reigning with him as a, in a parable as an encouragement to his followers in Luke 19, 17. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little, you will have authority over ten cities. Kent Hughes writes the following. The reward for this amazes us because it goes beyond being with him to reigning with him. This is not a pie-in-the-sky reward. Jesus was specific about this in a parable to Minas where he has the master say, Well done, my good servant. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. Co-regency speaks of privileged intimacy. Those who endure will be his co-reigning viceroys and confidants. What joy! The eternal reward goes beyond eternal rest to eternal responsibility as Christ's co-regents. In the book of Revelation, once again, we see this very same element of enduring and reigning with Christ. I invite you to turn with me there, if you would, to Revelation chapter 20. And I will start with verse 4. Revelation 20, starting at verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Here are people who endured. And they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So the application is that in the midst of present hardship and difficulty, there is a tremendous future hope for the people of God. We need to keep in mind that this life is not all that there is. And there is much that is disappointing. Many times things don't turn out the way that we have anticipated. And sometimes it even seems as though there's no real benefit in being a child of God. Now we know that that's not true. But the psalmist talks about in his own life how that he got to the place where he said that there was no value in being a child of God. It says until he entered into the house of God and then he understood the end of the wicked. He understood that there's a quite a different difference in the eternal realm. Paul says that he is motivated by this future reigning with Jesus Christ, even as I referred to those verses 
earlier in the message. There is the joy of the resurrection, and there is the privilege of reigning alongside of the Lord Jesus Christ. All this suffering and hardship will prove to be more than just worthwhile. But what if we totally reject the Lord? Verse 12. Answer, then he will reject us. Notice verse 12. If we endure, we also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. The passage that's before us is one that on the surface is quite straightforward and easy to understand. There is blessing and reward for faithfulness. There is hardship and difficulty for unfaithfulness. The main point is clear. But as we try to apply this at a more singular and and deeper level, it gets much more complicated. Taking that basic truth and trying to apply it to the various circumstances in life is not as easy as it first seems. The greatest problem in interpreting this passage is to ascertain what does it mean to deny the Lord. Notice verse 12. If we deny him, he also will deny us. One of the ways in which we can answer questions in the scripture as we try to ascertain the deeper meaning of these things is to do a word study. And we'll say, okay, we're going to look at the places where the word deny is used. Well, if you do a word study on the word deny, you're going to come up with some interesting results. For the word is extremely broad in its usage in the New Testament. The word translated deny has a large range of meanings. First, there is the denial, which is the complete or ultimate rejection of Christ in which a person was never saved. All right? So there's the denial of just absolute refusal to believe and submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. For example, here are some ways in which this word has been used. <clears throat> in the book of Acts, Peter's address, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied, that's our word, in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One, and asked for a murder to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. So it is the abject refusal to identify with Jesus Christ and to give him up for crucifixion. In 1 John it says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So here we find that if you deny or reject Christ, you have no hope of eternal life. You do not only have failed to have a relationship with Jesus, but 
you fail to have a relationship with the Father as well. For you cannot have a relationship to the Father without having a relationship to the Son. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but through me. And then we have the dire warning of Jesus when he says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And that should kind of shake us to our boots. Uh, you deny me, I will deny you. I will deny you before my Father who is in heaven. As I say, that would shake us to our boots. But then we find that there is a lesser denial, a temporary denial, if you will, exemplified in the life of Peter. Jesus had told Peter that Peter would deny Jesus three times. Matthew 26, 34. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Our same word. To which Peter replies, Even if I must die with you, I will never deny you. And all the disciples said the same. And of course, Peter did deny the Lord three times, even to the point of cursing. Matthew 26, 72. And again, he, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. But Jesus had also said to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. So here we find out that, that Peter really was a person of faith. He was a, a person who proclaimed allegiance to Jesus Christ. Such allegiance that Peter said, I'm willing to die for him. Now, of course, Peter didn't know the weakness and frailty of his own heart. He didn't know how fickle he really was. And so he ended up denying the Lord three times. I probably should have had you turn there, but turn with me to Luke chapter 22. For I find this very interesting. The context of this discussion about Peter and his denials of God, of the Lord Jesus. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 24. A dispute also rose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. 
Rather, let the greatest among you become as your youngest, and the leader is one who serves. For one who is greater, for who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on the thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now it's in the context of talking about the kingdom, and it's in the context of talking about reigning with Christ, that he then, in verse 31, reveals... Simon, Simon, Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you as wheat. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said, I am ready to go with both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times. He said, Peter, you're going to deny me. Peter, I know you're going to deny me. Peter, you're going to reign with me. Now, how do you put all that together? This Peter, who will deny the Lord three times, will also be reigning with Christ as evidence as Christ's own words. Of course, it's this very same Peter who denied the Lord three times that is going to go on to be a great witness for the Lord and ultimately actually will die a martyr's death and exercise faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ. The admonition that he, that is Jesus, will deny those that deny him, the admonition is to those who outright reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Those that refuse to bow the knee, those who refuse to identify Jesus as the true Son of God and the true Savior and the true Lord. The warning is of a rejection of Christ. We, of course, should seek to be faithful to the Lord. But what if we're not? What if we're not? What if we find ourselves in that same position that Peter found himself. What if you are here this morning and you say, you know, I am a follower of the Lord Jesus. And I'm going to stand for him. I'm going to bring glory to his name. I'm not going to let anything deter me from my commitment to Jesus Christ and his purpose and work. And then you find yourself weak and frail and not willing to stand up for Christ, not willing to be associated, find yourself to be timid, bashful, unwilling to speak. What then? What happens? Notice the next if-then. What if we are unfaithful to the Lord? Answer then he will still be faithful to us. What if we are unfaithful to the Lord, then he still will be faithful to us. Notice verse 13. If we are faithless, 
he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. We need to ask ourselves as we work our way through what is now the most difficult part of this, this passage, is, is this a statement of hope or condemnation? And commentaries have taken it to be both. Is it a statement of hope or is it a statement of condemnation? Well, we first again start with the translation issue. In uh, verse 13, the ESV, the NAS, and the NIV all translate it this way. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. The King James translates it, if we believe not, yet he abides faithful. Which way should it be translated? If we are faithless or if we believe not? Uh, Leifold in the NIV application commentary says this, and I find it to be helpful. He says, since the verb aposteo, which is the word which is translated as not to believe or faithless, can mean to be disbelieve or to be unfaithful or disloyal, opinions differ as to its meaning here. But its meaning must be in contrast to what God is, for he is pistos, which cannot mean believing. God does not believe, but is faithful. Thus the NIV translation, if we are faithless, is correct. In summary, verse 13 affirms God's consistency and integrity. Although human beings may not keep faith with God, he will not break faith with us because he cannot be inconsistent with himself, end quote. N.T. Wright, in his commentary, says this, and I quote, There is, of course, a surface-level peculiarity about the third and fourth lines of this jingle. Jesus himself did warn that he would deny before the Father those who denied him before other people. This means an awful warning turned into a terrifying dramatic scene in the parables, I do not know you, says the bridegroom to the girls who fell asleep. But alongside even this denial, the most terrible words I can ever imagine ever being spoken to me, there is a further promise. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. This abiding faithfulness is, according to the saying, rooted in Jesus' own character. He can't deny himself. How can we resolve this? Is Paul saying in one line that denying Jesus brings terrible consequences, and the next that it doesn't after all? No, I don't think so. Faithless here means if we lose our faith in the sense of ceasing to believe that Jesus is Lord and God, raised from the dead, I think this is meant to take account of the fact that our faithfulness, our reliability, our stickability, our resolve, our determination to remain faithful, and the sense of loyal will waver and wobble from time to time. Those under intense pressure, whether political, spiritual, moral, or whatever, will sometimes find themselves weak, faint, and helpless. It is at those times that they need to learn a kind of second-order faith, a faith in the utter faithfulness and reliability of God himself, the God we know in and through Jesus, who was himself faithful to death. There is a world of difference between being blown off the ship's deck by a hurricane and voluntarily diving into the sea to avoid having to stay at the helm. End quote. The point of verse 13 
is that the one to whom we are faithful, though not stated, is Jesus. If we are faithless to him, nevertheless, he remains faithful. Implied to us. We, though unfaithful to Jesus, will be faithful to us. That is, that he will save us, that he will redeem us, that he will bring us into his presence, that if we die with him, we live with him. The reason that he remains faithful to us is told to us in verse 13, that is, he can't deny himself. So Christ's faithfulness does not depend upon us. God's faithfulness is not a reward for our faithfulness. It's not if, if you are faithful to me, then I will be faithful to you. But in the wonderful goodness and grace of God, even when we are unfaithful, he still remains faithful. And it says the reason is because he can't deny himself. He can't go against his character. He can't go against who he is. He can't go against the purpose that God had given to Christ, even before the foundation of the world, as we saw last week. How God had given a people to Jesus to save. He will save them. He will bring about their resurrection. They will be in his presence. He cannot deny himself, even as it says in John 17. Of all that you have given to me, I have lost none. It's a part of his character. You see, there is a great divide between Jesus and ourselves. In our character, we are faithless. We are anything but faithful. We are as unstable as water. Paul had said earlier in verse 1 of chapter 2, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And those things which you have heard from me, commit unto faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Where does that faithfulness come from? It's the grace of God. It's the enablement that God gives. But unfortunately, many times, we don't call upon God. We don't rely upon God. We, like Peter, say, I can do it myself. And when we do that, we miserably fail. But God, in his goodness, and in his grace, remains faithful to us when we are unfaithful to him. For that's his very character. That's his being. God is not a man that he should lie, as we used as our call to worship this morning. God is not a man that he should repent. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't choose me on one day and reject me the next. It's not like we hold in our hands a pedal, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. It isn't dependent upon my relationship to him at that particular moment in time. 
His love for us is sure. Obviously, we're not to abuse that great hope. We are not to misuse that great truth. Paul asked the question, what should we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What was that great answer? God forbid. God forbid. This isn't a, a text to teach us licentiousness or, or, or teach us to be uh, faithless by, by any means. But there is a statement of hope and confidence and rejoicing in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ that can't be thwarted and can't be overcome. And that's why we continue on preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus. For Paul says, though I am bound, the word of God is not bound. It will achieve its purposes in its end. So we have seen that there are three reasons, two of them which we had seen in the past, to be people who endure. We have seen that we're to endure in order to bring glory to God. We have seen that we're to endure for the faith of the elect. And this morning, we see that we are to endure so that we might reign with Christ. Notice the text doesn't say so that we can be saved. It says that we endure so that we can reign with Christ. But I tell you, people, that there is going to be nothing more cherished than standing in the presence of Jesus and hearing, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. To be able to stand before him without regret, without remorse, without self-indictment that we lived a life that's worthy of praise and brought glory to Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said, again, I'm now ready to be offered. The time of my departure is hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me at that day, and not to me only, but to all them also that love is appearing. And we know what we do with those crowns that we receive. We cast them at the feet of Jesus. I believe that when we stand in his presence, that he is not going to bring up our sin, but he won't need to. An illustration. I've used it before. But uh, when I was in high school, we would have uh, award assemblies, and there was a day in which people were taken into the National Honor Society. When I was in high school, I wasn't very motivated. I wasn't a good student. I easily could have been. I got A's and B's and sometimes C's. Mostly the C's because I wouldn't do homework. And it'd be deducted from my final grade. Really, studying came pretty easy for me. But I was a bum. I just didn't try. And 
there was the award assembly, and those people that were in the National Honor Society were paraded across the stage, and they didn't say, and down there sits the bum who didn't try. They didn't have to. I sat there and said to myself, you know, with any work at all, you could have accomplished that. With any effort, put forth. And you missed that accolade. You missed that honor. I got over it pretty soon. I didn't really care that much whether I was in the National Honor Society or not. But I tell you, we will care when we hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Last Sunday night, we saw that you can't please God and men. Don't let your fear of people, don't let what other people think about you keep you from being faithful in identifying with Jesus Christ and sharing the good news of the gospel. If you endure, you reign. You hear the, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That should be a high motivation for us. But we're not to be motivated by fear. You know, one time someone said to me, look at those Jehovah's Witnesses out there. You know, they're, they're out all the time. And... Uh, well, how, how commendable is that? And I said, you know, they're not really out there because they love you. They're out there because they're trying to save their souls. Our motivation for faithfulness isn't really out of a desire to save our souls. It's to bring glory to Jesus Christ. And it's to please him. And the scripture says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. By God's wonderful grace, he has given us faith. And he's given us all that we need to be faithful to him. If we just avail ourselves of his grace and his goodness. We see in the wonderful example of Peter how people can change. How people can go from weakness to strength. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're kind of beating yourself up because you're saying to yourself, you know, I haven't been the kind of Christian I ought to be. And there are times that I really didn't stand up for the things of God. But by God's grace. Verse 1. Therefore, therefore, my child, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Stand for him. Live for him. Endure. It will be worthwhile. Let's pray. Our Father, help us this day. Help us to be a people who love you and love the thought of bringing you glory. Who want other people to view you the way we do and understand your wonderful mercy. Thank you for saving us by the work and power of Jesus Christ. Thank you for giving us faith. Thank you for having a plan that existed even before the foundation of the earth. 
Thank you, Lord, that we are your people by your agency. And now, Lord, help us to live faithfully to you. Help us desire to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Lord, uh, help us to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as we know that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.